Take up your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to that book of Jude that we read from already. Jude, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 20 through 23. You know, uh, part of our reason for turning to this scripture is it's been my conviction since the first day I stood in this pulpit. It's that I really have nothing to say to you that's of any real value except what the Word of God says. And so, naturally... All that we've tried to do and all that I've tried to do from this pulpit has been to expound the Word of God. And this is an interesting, albeit a challenging uh, Sunday and a challenging message to preach because this will be my last Sunday serving as pastor. And as William Shakespeare once wrote, parting is such sweet sorrow. And sweet because we're excited about the ministries that are ahead of us in the future and we're excited for Sycamore Bible Church and what's in your future as well, but of course there's also a tinge of sadness in leaving. And I think I know better now what Paul expresses in Philippians when he says to that church, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Which leads me to this message. It's somewhat of a farewell and sort of last words, although That sounds so grim, doesn't it? Last words. It's like, it sounds like I'm dying or something. But uh, I don't mean this to be morbid or to be, you know, particularly sad. But it does make me wonder, you know, what's, on what note should we conclude our time here at this church? And what, what message do we want to get across It's like Paul, you know, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, it was sort of his last words, his last opportunity to speak to them. So I've been thinking about this and wondering, is there a specific encouragement or admonition or exhortation that I could give that would be a fit word for this moment? As I thought about that, the main thing I want to communicate is this. Keep the faith, keep pressing on, keep serving. In other words, it's not some new message, it's not something new that you need right now, but rather to be encouraged to faithfully keep the course. And hence the title of our message is Anchored. The main thing I want to get across in this message is that Sycamore Bible Church will be a solid ministry if we keep our mooring. Sycamore Bible Church will be a solid ministry if we keep our mooring. If we remain true to the things that matter most, And if we keep our priorities affixed to the scriptures, I think the future of this church is bright. But we must be aware, on the other hand, of drift. Again, anchored is a good term. You know, a ship that is anchored is not moving anywhere. The heavy iron anchor at the bottom of the sea floor keeps the ship from moving too far. And yet, if we lose our anchor or the rope snaps... We begin to drift wherever the sea takes us. And this is sadly the case for churches and organizations that go off the rails. Rarely is there a time when when a church says, hey, let's abandon sound doctrine. Let's move away from biblical teaching. No, it's usually a slow drift over time. A good example, we might think of the YMCA, which was founded in 1844 by Sir George Williams in London. He found it as a way to help young men physically and spiritually. For Williams, the purpose of the YMCA, which stood for the Young Men's Christian Association, 
Here's what he said it was. It was for, quote, improving the spiritual condition of young men. Now, in the 160-plus years, however long it's been, since the founding of the YMCA, it's pretty clear that they have drifted more towards the physical health rather than the spiritual health. And now it's not even called the YMCA anymore, but the Y. It's, it's a drift that happens over time where George Williams would probably hardly recognize what the YMCA is today. Certainly not fulfilling its original purpose. And that's the point. Organizations like this and churches too drift over time. And unless they're anchored to something steadfast, something solid, that's what happens. So here's the question. What's the moorings of Sycamore Bible Church? What's our, our rock on which we attach that anchor? Well, to do see that, I'd like us to turn to the little book of Jude. And obviously, I'm not going to go through the whole book here, although it's, it's very short. Right before Revelation, this little New Testament book, one of the shortest, fits on one page. And it's, it's not a book that many people are very familiar with. I doubt there's very many people who, if you ask them what their favorite book of the Bible is, would say Jude. Unless they're just looking for a really short book. The point is, it's kind of overlooked in the, the canon of Scripture. And its contents can be a bit harsh. Um, in fact, let's look at Jude verse 3. He explains his original purpose for writing, but also why he changed course. He writes, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So here's Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, not an apostle per se, but certainly writing with all the authority of an apostle. He writes to them, and he says, originally I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I wanted to talk to you about the blessings we share in Jesus. But, he says, I found out that certain men have crept in among you who are teaching false doctrine, who are teaching uh, not the way of the Lord, but the way of the world. And I write to you now to contend, that is to fight for sound doctrine. Fight for the faith that you have, you've heard, that's been delivered to you. And the whole rest of Jude is basically an excoriating condemnation of these false teachers. Jude just lays it all out there, that they are destined for destruction, that they're corrupting people, and that their end will be fire. From all that, you might wonder, well, how can this be a message of encouragement, of anchoring to us? Well, in verse 20, he says, but you, beloved. He switches from talking to and about the false teachers to instead now addressing the faithful saints. He says, but you, here's how you ought to live. In other words, in a world that's awash with all this false teaching, where there's a, a hundred ideas about doctrine and about belief, he says, how are you going to stay anchored? How are you going to keep your footing? How are you not going to fall into false teaching? And he explains in verses 20 and following. And to me, this gives us a good example of what our mooring should be. This is what Sycamore Bible Church can hang on to. If we embrace these commands, and if we live our lives in, in this way as, as people like this, 
that I think the future of Sigmore Bible Church is bright. I guess another way to say it is this. If, if five or ten years from now I hear news from Sycamore Bible Church and, and this is how you as a church are described, it will be a happy occasion. So what is this? Well, the Bible, the Bible gives five descriptions, I think, of what kind of people we should be. Let's look at them together. Number one, we should be Bible people. Be Bible people. After all, we are a Bible church, right? Christians for a long time have been known, especially by the Muslims, as people of the book. I think that's a pretty good designation, don't you? We're people of the book. That's not to say that we don't love and worship the Lord, but this is his word. He has given us these 66 books in which to know him and to know what is true. And I would say being people of the Bible or people of the word is a good thing to be known for. Why? I think it's wise for us to be anchored to this. The Bible is, after all, our our sole source of authority and faith and godliness. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Sycamore Bible Church will be and ought to be known as Bible people. Look at verse 20 of Jude. Jude writes, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. I really want to look at that first phrase. He begins by saying, but you. And as I already mentioned, he's transitioning to talking to the faithful saints as opposed to the condemnation of the false prophets. He says, but you, beloved. And this designation as beloved, he's already used it. Earlier, even in verse 3, he calls them beloved. Now, certainly this talks about Jude's feelings towards his audience. He loves them. They're beloved to him. But also, I think this is a good designation for Christians in general because we are those who are beloved by God. We are the beloved of the Lord. And so, beloved kind of has a two-way two uh, angle here in terms of Jude loves these people, but they are also beloved of the Lord. And then he uses, in verse 22, participial phrases. Now, if you haven't talked about or thought about participle since you were in grade school, participle is like a, a verb ending in ing. So you see that right here in verse 20. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And yet these participles act something like commands. In fact, even in this passage, they're, they're kind of used that way. So first he says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. This really connects back to his main point, doesn't it? Because back in verse 3, he said, I, I wrote to you that you contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. So now he calls it your most holy faith. It is those set of ideas, the things that we hold to which we believe to be true, Doug Moo describes our most holy faith this way. He says, faith here means what Christians believe, the doctrinal and ethical core of Christianity. Well, let me ask the question. What is it that defines or 
uh, sets the parameters for what we believe. Isn't it the word of God? I mean, Christians don't just believe whatever they feel like believing, right? We're told that's why we are people of the book. It's because this is our instruction manual. This is what God has given us. So our beliefs must align with it. So when he says building yourselves up on your most holy faith, he's talking about building yourselves up on the word, on the foundation that the apostles and prophets have laid, which for us is the scripture. Build yourselves up on it, which, by the way, build, building has the idea of a structure, doesn't it? You know, Sometimes we'll, we'll use this even like building somebody up, like encouraging them or edifying them. But even the word edify is from the same root as edifice, which is a building, a structure. So let's not forget that there is sort of a picture behind this word. Where he says building yourselves up. It's like we're laying brick upon brick. We're building the church. We're building up one another brick by brick upon what? The foundation. The foundation which is your most holy faith. That most holy faith is the testimony of the apostles. It is the word of God which has been given to us. Now, contrast this with the false teachers. They're not building up on the most holy faith, are they? They're tearing down with a wrong foundation. So he's saying, do the opposite. Instead of going the way of the false teachers, build yourselves up, not on their vain imaginations, but rather build yourselves up on the truth. Now, here's, here's something we have to look out for. Yes, we need to look out for false teachers. But these false teachers, even in Jude, were not foolish. I mean, they didn't come in saying, forget your Bible, we've got a new book for you to read. No, I imagine their teaching was probably sprinkled with verses. Uh, many people today will do the same thing. Put in enough good-sounding, Christian-sounding language and mix it with just a little bit of error. So these false teachers were clever. And certainly they probably sounded like they knew what they were talking about. They sounded like they were, you know, honoring the Bible and honoring God's word. And yet they were using that as a way to undermine people's faith. Uh, when it comes to building upon the foundation of the Bible, we've got to be careful. Even though we may not slip into full heretic mode like these folks were, it's easy to let our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own desires, our own intuition to shape what we think is right and to shape our worldview instead of Scripture. So if something doesn't sound right to us or, you know, oh, that, that really doesn't appeal to me. Well, who's the, who's the arbiter of truth? It's me, isn't it? Instead of submitting myself to the word of God, I stand above it and say, no, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound reasonable. We've got to be careful to let the Bible shape our worldview. Everybody has one, by the way, a worldview. It's, it's the way we look at things. It's the way we uh, take in information. Every day we get all information being poured in our direction and how do you sort it out how do you categorize it how do you make sense out of the news that you see well if you have a biblical worldview and it's being filtered through scripture you're able to look at life through that lens in fact that's what the bible really ought to be for us the lens through which we see all of life 
So the Bible must be, should be that lens. Let us be Bible people, and I think Sycamore Bible Church will be on the right path. Read it. Study it. Know it. Love it. You know, again, I am excited for a new year. One of the things that uh, kind of happens at the new year is uh, a lot of people make a commitment to start reading the Bible. And this this year, I've started uh, just yesterday a Bible reading plan that will take me through the whole Bible in a year. I've done it a couple times before, but uh, I haven't done it in a little while. So it's like, okay, let's get back and read through the whole whole Bible in a year again. And I think that's a, a valuable thing to do. But the point of it is not just, oh, so I can claim I've read the Bible through again, but rather because we need the Word of God in us. I'm not going to be a Bible person unless I've got the Bible in me, unless I'm filtering it through constantly. Charles Spurgeon, you know, a man who had the, the Word of God in his own veins, once said of John Bunyan, prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. So according to Spurgeon, if you, if you cut John Bunyan's finger, out flows Bible verses. I mean, that's how, that's how full of the word of God he was. And I would commend his example to you as well. If we're going to be Bible people, we've got to let the word of God run through us. We must continue to be built up on our most holy faith. So if Sycamore Bible Church is going to be anchored, it needs to be known for being people of the word. But second, we must also be prayerful people. We must be prayerful people. You notice this in verse 20. It says, you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. This is that second participial phrase. The church, or any church without prayer, is a failing church. And this is one of the things I, I see a lot in modern church movements. You know, for decades, there have been church conferences and seminars and books and websites and podcasts and blogs that try to keep churches plugged into the newest trends. You know, what's, what's the latest thing in church growth? What's the latest thing in church ministry? Um, you know, how do you, how do you grow a church? How do you reach people? And these sources are always telling you, you know, try this, try that, use this program, use this method. But I've almost never seen prayer emphasized. Usually, sometimes it's mentioned, but rarely is prayer emphasized. It's like, we're trying to build a healthy church, so we're going to talk about, you know, methods and strategies and all of this. Well, it's like, well, where's prayer in that? And I think it's one of the easy-to-overlook parts of ministry. I mean, again, I don't know if I've ever heard of a conference where the whole point is getting back to prayer. E.M. Bounds, who wrote a lot on prayer, said this, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better or new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. You know, the church may be filled with activity, but if prayer is missing, then they're missing something very, very important. 
By the way, the same is true of our individual lives, too. Um, Prayer ought to be the blood that flows through our veins. It's the natural language of the Christian. Martin Luther once stated, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Indeed, it ought to be. The phrase here, praying in the Holy Spirit, doesn't hint at some special kind of praying. He's not talking about some charismatic experience or you know, praying some in, in tongues or something like that. It's rather praying in line with, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we all need the Holy Spirit's help in praying. In fact, it says in Romans, sometimes we don't know what we ought to pray for. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that words cannot utter. So it's the Holy Spirit helping in prayer. One question that oftentimes comes up about prayer is why? You know, if God knows everything and God is, uh, you know, omniscient, well, why do I need to pray? You know, doesn't he already know my needs? Why do I have to mention it? It's not like God is just waiting to hear what they are. So why pray at all? Well, let me highlight three things very quickly. First of all, prayer is a recognition of dependence. It's a recognition of dependence on our part. (coughs) When we pray, we are stating our dependence on the Lord. We can't do this on our own. And so it's good and healthy for us to be praying, not just because, well, you know, prayer, prayer answers, you know, God answers prayer, but rather even from our own standpoint. It's good to be reminded that we are not autonomous people. We're dependent on the Lord for everything. Prayer is a recognition of dependence. Secondly, prayer is a declaration of faith. On our part, When we pray, it shows that we're trusting in God. When we fail to pray, it shows that we are trusting in ourselves. Indeed, prayer is a declaration of faith. Uh, Number three, prayer is an absolute necessity. It's, It's commanded in Scripture. It's what we ought to do. And so, again, prayer does make a difference. Prayer matters. We ought to be a praying church. And Sycamore Bible Church can never be all that it was meant to be unless prayer is kept alive. Wouldn't it be great to have the reputation as a a congregation? Hey, those people over there in Trafalgar, they're a praying church. They're praying people. I think if we we lose that, we lose part of what keeps us anchored. But not only should we be Bible people and be prayerful people, we should also be obedient people. Obedient people. It's one thing to know the word. It's another to live it. There are lots of churches I could point out where there might be a lot of great teaching. And there might be a lot of uh, people with big heads, with lots of theological knowledge. But they're not necessarily living it. Be obedient people. Jude says it this way in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's interesting. It doesn't seem to say anything about obedience there. It just says keep yourself in the love of God. Now, I might note that this is an imperative verb. In fact, it's the only imperative verb in the passage. So we might see this as being the main idea. Keep yourselves in the love of God, and this is how, by building yourself up, by praying, by having compassion, and so on. But all of these kind of work together to show us our, our mooring as a church. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, the love of God is one of those topics that you could almost never exhaust. You know, we talked last Sunday about John 3.16 and about uh, 
God's love in sending his son to die for us. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and he prays for them that they would grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. He says here, keep yourselves in the love of God. That not it God who keeps us, not we who keep ourselves? There seems to be sort of a double-edged side of this. And in fact, let's turn back, if you will, to John chapter 15 real quickly. So John chapter 15 has a very similar statement. Uh, if you look at verses 9 and 10, I think Jude is picking up on the same idea as here. John 15, verses 9 and 10 says, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Hmm. That sounds very much like keep yourself in God's love, doesn't it? Abide in my love. Here's what what Jesus explains. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So hopefully now it makes sense why I would say be obedient people. Because to keep yourself in God's love, as Jesus explains, means keeping his commandments. It means obeying his voice. He is the great shepherd. Uh, To keep yourself in his love, as Jude expresses, is in a sense the same idea as obedience. In fact, even the word keep, as it's found in Jude 21, even that word keep can somehow sometimes have the idea of obedience in itself. You know, when Jesus says, keep my commandments, okay, keep has the idea of obey. So keep yourself in God's love. When you obey, you will remain in that place of experiencing God's love. Now, that's not to say that if you are disobedient, God withholds his love or withdraws his love from you. But... When you are under his discipline, you're not experiencing the full blessing of being in his love, are you? I mean, yes, he still loves you, even when he disciplines us, but how much better to be in a right relationship with him, you know, where we're not disobeying, where we're not getting the rod. So it is, keep yourself in his love. Well, the one question we might ask is, why doesn't Jude just say obedience if that's what he's trying to get across? Well, I think it's because he wants us to see obedience within the overall scope of God's love. It's not just obey, because obedience can easily be divorced from love, can't it? You know, we can obey someone without loving them. Uh, For instance, if you're on a job, you may obey your boss, but you may not love your boss. But you can still follow what he says, you can still obey what he commands. Well... It seems to me that Jude is trying to put this obedience within the scope of God's love. That's the main uh, overarching idea here. So it's not enough that we have big Bible-filled brains. The question is, do we walk in the teaching of Scripture? Do we live it? Do we keep ourselves in God's love? Paul warns in 1 Corinthians that knowledge without love puffs up, but love edifies. The evidence that we're keeping ourselves in God's love It's not how much we know or being able to check off certain boxes, but the testimony of a life lived in obedience to God. We keep our moorings when we keep ourselves in God's love. Fourth, we must be expectant people. 
expectant people. Every generation of Christians has prayed, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And every generation of Christians has looked at the sky and wondered if Christ would soon return. Now, I'm not predicting anything, and I'm not real fond of uh, saying, you know, well, look at all these world events, you know, it looks like they're lining up for the end times. But I do know that Jesus is coming, and it's sooner than anyone expects, and it's certainly sooner than it was yesterday or the day before. So Christ is coming. The question is, how often do we think about that? Is that, is that sort of baked into us? Or is that something that we have to kind of remind ourselves of occasionally? Look at verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He talks about looking or waiting for the mercy of Christ. Now, in one sense, we already have eternal life, right? We've been given eternal life when we trust in Jesus. But we're still in our mortal bodies, right? We're going to die someday if, if we live long enough or if the trumpet doesn't sound. But when Jesus comes back and the trump sounds, we are going to be raised immortal. Our mortal bodies will put on incorruption, the Bible says. And then we will experience eternal life as it was meant to be experienced. So yes, we already have it in one sense, but in another, when the mercy of Christ is shown, we will have eternal life as it was meant to be lived. Now, it's interesting to me, uh, Jude also talks about mercy when Christ appears. Now, again, we've already been shown mercy in the gospel. But when Jesus returns, he comes back to do two things, right? He comes to gather his people to himself, and he comes to judge the world. So the fact that we are gathered with him and not judged is a tangible expression of God's mercy, right? Because we, heaven knows, we all deserve to be in the, the judgment pot. But we will be spared if we are in Christ. It's also interesting to me that throughout the New Testament, almost every New Testament book, with only a few exceptions, mentions the return of Jesus. It's definitely something the apostles took seriously and really talked about and cared about. And yet, I think teaching on the coming of Christ seems to me like it moves on a pendulum. There'll be times in church history when it's like people are, are near obsessed with end times and, and Jesus coming back. And then it swings to the other side where it's almost completely neglected and ignored. And I don't know, wouldn't it be better if it was somewhere closer to the middle where we actually focus on it but not, uh, not obsess about it perhaps? It's not a passive thing he's talking about here in verse 21, uh, looking. It's an active thing. We're waiting for the coming of Christ. He is our hope. This world needs Jesus. And we need to remind each other of these truths. In fact, I think we shouldn't be shy about putting it up before others. I don't know if I've shared this story here or not, but at a, at a job I used to work, there was a fellow named Norm Jordan. And he was, a, he was an interesting fellow. He's an older guy. And uh, he was paralyzed from the waist down. And so every time I saw him, he'd be in a power chair and he would come driving up. And he, was, he was a funny guy. He used to jokingly talk about his favorite verse, which was Psalm 147.10, which says, the Lord takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. So, uh, but the thing I remember most about Norm Jordan was every time I saw him, and I mean every time I saw him, 
He always said to me the same thing. He said, maybe today, Reed. He was talking about Jesus' return. Maybe today. And, and every time I saw him, it was always the same. Maybe today. I've never met, I don't think, anybody so fixated on the fact that Jesus was coming back and coming soon. Well, Norm Jordan is with the Lord now. So he, he certainly hasn't missed the second coming. He'll be a part of it. But now that he's gone, I feel myself a little bit uh, needing to take up some of what he did, if you know what I mean. Uh, I think I need to be reminding people, hey, maybe today, maybe today. And I think all of us need to remind one another of that on a daily basis. It appears to me that the apostles were anchored to the belief that Jesus was coming. And I think that we should be too. Finally, we must be compassionate people. If Sycamore Revival Church is going to be what it ought to be, we need to be compassionate people. Jesus was. So if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to imitate him and showing compassion. Look at verses 22 and 23. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So the focus now comes back around to the false teachers and the damage they create. You know, they're leading people away from the truth to destruction. And true believers need to be compassionately rescuing people. Now, your version of the Bible might read a little bit differently than what I just read. There's several interesting variations in the textual history of this passage. The real question comes down to whether or not there's one or, two, or excuse me, two or three phrases here. I'm going with two, um, but there's, you know, people disagree on, on how many phrases uh, are there in the original text. But I'm taking it as two phrases. On some have compassion, making a distinction, then the second phrase, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And really, I think it boils down to two groups here. Group number one is the deceived. Group number one is the deceived. He talks here about showing compassion and making a distinction. Making a distinction could refer to people who are doubting. Or it could refer to making a distinction between false teachers and those who are deceived. In either case, it seems that this first group referred to in verse 22 are people who have been drawn in, who've been tricked by the false teachers. And he says, on them, have compassion. Be kind. Be generous. They've probably fallen under the spell of these false teachers. You know, they're confused. You know, instead of berating them, instead of beating up on them and questioning, you know, how can you believe in such a stupid lie? He says, have compassion. When we encounter people who believe differently, than we do, we ought to have compassion and kindness. You know, it's, it's very rare that someone has ever won to Christ by red-faced yelling arguments. Have compassion. On the other hand, we can be so kind and deferential that we never actually tell someone their beliefs are wrong, right? We could, we could sometimes get in this position where it's, we think to ourselves, oh, I don't want to offend them. I want to be kind. I want to be gracious. And so we never actually speak up and tell them, you know, that's not what the Bible says. 
That's not what the Bible teaches about that. We need to be bold, but bold with compassion. Then he talks about group number two. These are not just the deceived. They're the deceivers themselves. Verse 23, he says, But others save with fear, pulling them out by the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So the second group probably refers to false teachers themselves or those who have gone far down the path of the false teachers. He says, For them, save them but with fear. In other words, Chase them down by all means. Try to rescue them, but make sure you don't fall into their errors. Don't make, make sure you don't get sucked in. Because again, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who's a deceiver, they might be after you. So he says, approach it with fear. Don't, don't go into it with just compassion, but also with this healthy fear. And then he says, pulling them or snatching them out of the fire. A fire, of course, is a picture of eternal judgment. And he uses this term snatch, which means a very violent grabbing and removing. It's like, it's like taking somebody and yanking them. And the picture here is almost like somebody in a burning building who needs to be rescued. He says, get in there. Draw them. Pull them out of the fire. They're almost at the end of their rope. Save them from the flames. It's a pretty vivid picture. Compassion mixed with fear in reaching people with the gospel. But he also warns in verse 23, you should be pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, we want to show compassion to these people, love them, but make sure you don't end up falling into their sins. This, is, this sort of goes back to the idea where we say sometimes, hate the sin, love the sinner. Yes, there is a sense in which uh, we love people because God loves people, and yet we don't take a soft view on sin either. He says, hating the garment defiled by the flesh. Uh, you know, in the Bible, a person's character is often depicted by their clothing. That's why the saints are pictured in white robes. But here, it's stained garments. People who have turned away from the truth and, and not only that whose lifestyle is, is characterized by sin but he still says save them I think we need to be compassionate people like our Lord was so my prayer for Sycamore Bible Church is that this be a place where the gospel is extended to all and that sinners of all kinds will find the grace of God again I go back to Charles Spurgeon for a moment he once famously said if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. So I guess the question for us this morning would be, who can we reach for the gospel? Who is it that uh, we can start and saying, hey, I want to have compassion. I want to snatch that person from the flames. I'm reminded of an old hymn which says, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I nobly do my part to win that soul to thee. I think if Sycamore Bible Church is a place where people are passionate to reach the lost, its anchor will be cast in good waters. So I believe 
the future of Sycamore Bible Church is bright if we keep our moorings, if we stay anchored to what truly matters, if we continue to be Bible people and prayerful people, obedient people, expectant people, and compassionate people. I think the future is bright. Keep the course. Finish the race. Serve God and others. It's not with a small measure of sadness that uh, our family bids you farewell, but the Lord's love will keep you. So I close this morning with the closing verses of the letter of Jude. He says, after mentioning the compassion with which we should be reaching people, he says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion, power, both now and forever. Amen.